Fantastic. Well, you have been served well, I trust, over the past two weeks with Sam and Joel preaching. I listened to Sam's sermon live, but I was away while Joel was preaching. I heard he did a great job, uh, but I'm very thankful for those men and their families to release them, to spend the time to study the Word, pray over it, and then deliver it to you. And I hope it bless you, encourage you. Some, some difficult psalms there that they dealt with, uh, but I hope that uh, you now know how to read some of those psalms more effectively. I certainly was. I was like, I don't really know how to read Psalm 137, and Sam did a great job. I was like, now I know. Um, so I hope it encouraged you. We're going to start a new series today called Risk is Right, and I've stolen that completely from a John Piper book uh, and sermon series that he did, uh, so it's nothing original or new. In fact, a lot of this material is just a summary of John Piper's short book, Risk is Right. I encourage you to read it. Uh, it's very short. It's very easy to read. It's basically just stories from Scripture and highly, highly um, stirring and encouraging. No one seems to stir my soul quite like John Piper. He's my theological hero since I'm about 16 years old. And so I don't have any shame in saying a lot of this material is his, uh, his ideas. Uh, but the reason why I wanted to share it is I think this is what we need to hear as a church going into 2020. So we're going to do four sermons on this message. Richie's going to preach next week, and then I'll preach the next couple of weeks after that. Would you open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9 to 12? I'm going to read the end of a little story that we'll look at later on. We don't often open up to 2 Samuel. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, all the way through. 1, 2 Samuel... Ammonites come out to attack David and his troops. He sends out his commanders, Joab. And this is what happens. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in the charge of Abishai, his brother, and he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we ask that you may bless the reading and preaching of your word this morning. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. The reason why I want to preach this series, Risk is Right, is born out of two moments that happened last year. Uh, firstly, a conversation that our core team had with Dave Taylor, who's the pastor of our Sending Church in Warunga. Uh, we, after he preached for us, we went out for dinner, and I presented to Dave sort of a bit of a plan for the year and a budget for the year. And as he looked at it and thought about it and heard my reasoning and thinking, he turned across to me and to the team, but mainly to me, to admonish me and rebuke me. And he said something to the effect, Riley, you have a habit of playing it safe. You have a habit of playing it safe. And in effect, what he then said is that for 2022, safety is not an option. Safety must not be an option as you look forward to 2022. 
And I was cut in that moment, in a sense, and, and revealed, I think, part of my heart that I love security and comfort. I mean, planting a church is a risk, but I feel like I did it in the least riskiest way possible. You know, we took a great team. We were well-funded. We didn't go that far away from our sending church. Uh, we had amazing people with us. We were well-supported the entire way. And I realized that as Dave said that, I, I recounted over my life and realized, oh, yeah, safety is my option. Uh, I like to look bold, but actually inside, I want to m- control that outcome. I'll take a risk. It looks like a risk, but really, I've already orchestrated so that it won't be a risk anymore. I wanted to draw up a plan that's a can't-fail plan. This was reinforced, actually, a couple of weeks earlier than this moment, so that it kind of all came together uh, in that time. At the pastors' conference in the U.S., Mark Prater, the executive director of Sovereign Grace Churches, addressed all the pastors and wives in Sovereign Grace, and he he wanted to compel us as a family of churches who have been, we've been battered a bit. You might not know all the stories, but the past decade, it's been hard for us as a family of churches. But he wanted to look us in the eyes and call us and motivate us to take risks for the glory of God. He read from Acts chapter 15 about Paul and Barnabas and how this is how they were described. Acts 15, 26, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Mark Prater said this, My prayer is that our family of churches, known as Sovereign Grace, would have a similar reputation. That we would be known as men and women. And that we would build churches who risk our lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. There would be no Sovereign Grace if we didn't take risks in the past. And there will be no sovereign grace if we stop taking risks now. I want to call all of us to take the right risks for Christ. I want to call all of us to take the right risks for Christ. And that sounds a little bit self-defeating, the right risks. (laughs) If you know it's right, it's not really a risk. But what he means is the right risks are the risks that we take for the cause of Christ. The right risks are the risks that we take for the cause of Christ and his gospel going forward. It is stirring and scary for me. I want that safety, security, and comfort. I want plans that can't fail. But the reality is, as we all know, there are no can't-fail plans. There are no guarantees or fixed outcomes in any facet of our life. We live in a world of uncertainty and unpredictability. And that's not just because of COVID-19. It's always been the case. Uncertainty and unpredictability is a design feature of the world that we live in. It's not a bug. Why is this the case? Well, we are born ignorant. We are not God. We are not omniscient. We do not know all that will happen. We are born into ignorance. We don't know what will happen five minutes from now, let alone five days from now, five weeks, five months, five years. The reality is, is that safety is not an option because it's impossible because we don't know the outcomes. 
John Piper explains that safety is a myth. It's a mirage that we believe in and live by. We think we can secure our safety and security. And so we become addicted to it. It becomes an idol in our life, even without realizing it. We know that there are all types of decisions we could or should make to do the right thing. Start a ministry, serve in this way, talk to this person, share the gospel, confront an evil, start a business, all these type of things. But for fear of failure or hurt, we balk. We sit on our hands and choose a version of safety that seems most comfortable to us. We live in a mirage thinking we can control the outcome. But look what's happened in the past two years when a randomly spreading, dangerous, contagious virus is let loose on our planet. Just like that, the myth of safety and security was swallowed up. It vanished. The veneer cracked. The still water became a whirlpool. Panic and fear has set in as you and I and friends and family, leaders and governments, scramble to reestablish our mirage. We can't handle the unpredictability of COVID-19. We can't handle the unpredictability of what will happen to our health and our loved ones and our businesses and our society and our safety and all those things. And so we are desperately trying to control it. And we're gripped by that fear, paralyzed by it for some. What do people wish each other now? Stay safe. On the top of my phone for two years, hashtag stay safe. As if I can achieve that. We've become so sheltered from risk in our modern Western world. We've cushioned our lives to minimize hurt and discomfort. And we have re- achieved unparalleled la- levels of safety in our society. I mean, think about this. We can drive in a car in a chunk of metal at 120 kilometers an hour, and we think we're safe because we've got a seatbelt on. <laughs> and maybe you've got a car that redirects you if you're going wrong. But there is no safety at 120 kilometers an hour. But we feel we're in this mirage. I'm safe because I'm in this little bubble. Or even if you've watched the NRL like I do, probably too much of it, there's these 130-kilogram rhinos 10 metres away from each other, running as fast as they can, and they try and put all these rules in to make it like, like it's a safe game, like, oh, we want to minimise injuries, which, which is good, but there's, there's no way that it's safe. You can't have safety in that sport. But we're addicted to it. Rugby union's dying in the junior leagues because no one wants their kid to go and play rugby union and get a head injury. The author, Michael Reeves, in his great book, Rejoice and Tremble, says this. Though we are more prosperous and secure, though we have more safety than almost any other society in history, safety has become the holy grail of our culture. And like the holy grail, it is something we can never quite reach. Protected like never before, we are skittish and panicky like never before. Our prosperity, our wealth, our security makes us more risk-averse. And it can come from good intentions. Often it is good intentions. It is good in general to not get infectious diseases. 
Uh, it is good in general to, you know, drive and have safety and play sport and not hurt your neck, etc., etc. It's worthy to try and protect people. I'm not saying that we should just take needless risks and jump off cliffs head first and, you know, drive with no seatbelts on. But sometimes risks must be made and taken for the good of others and for the good of worthy causes. Sometimes to do nothing and play it safe for us will cause great harm to others. If we don't take a risk to preach the gospel to our friends, eternal harm can come to them, just to save our own discomfort. If we don't take risks to confront evils, then horrible injustices like sex, slavery, abortion, domestic abuse, the lies of the transgender movement will have free reign in our society and harm many. If we don't take risks and give away our money and our time and our talents, then nothing gets done. And if we don't take risks, the greatest harm, we risk offending and displeasing our Lord and Saviour. But our comfort, our prosperity has largely, or can, maybe just for me, paralyze us. And so in a sense, there's a way in which we can thank God for COVID. Because it's been a divine wake-up call to many to realize there is no guarantee of safety in our life. There is no guarantee of health or security or five minutes from now. Many people are awake and realizing, and they're terrified. People have realized that the person you are sitting next to right now may carry an infectious disease that may kill you. You might die as a result of coming to church today. And before COVID, we weren't really aware of those kind of realities. We lived a bit sheltered from that thought, but COVID has brought it to the surface. But the question is now, what are we going to do with that new knowledge? Now that our eyes are open, that safety is not a reality, that the world is unpredictable, it's a myth and a mirage. What do we do? John Piper says that risk is woven into the fabric of the universe because we're ignorant creatures and also because God has decided in 99.99% of our lives not to reveal his will. We don't know whether or not we're meant to go here or there or do this or that, God hasn't revealed it to us unless God is constantly drip-feeding into your head a stream of like, go get that coffee, go to the bathroom, go over here, drive in your car at this speed. That's not happening for me. It's actually God's will that we would be in ignorance. It's woven into the fabric of our lives. We have no sure words about what jobs to take, who to marry, what ministries to be a part of. We can be certain that Christ will return, and that's about it. That's about all that God has revealed in our whole entire future. Even death is not guaranteed, because Christ may return before we die. Taxes, you know, who knows? We could have a society where there's no taxes one day. Christ's return is all that we can be sure will happen. What does James, the Apostle James, say to his churches that he encourages in James 4.13? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, 
If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So what do we do in response to this reality that safety is not an option? We must take risks. We must take risks, but not just risks. We must take risks for the cause of Christ. We must, as a church, as individuals, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, given the uncertainty, take risks for the cause of Christ. John Piper defines a risk as an action that exposes you to the possibility of loss or injury. And I want to argue today that it is right to take risks for the cause of God. That risk is right. God wants us to take risks that put us in the possibility of loss or injury for the sake of his name and fame and his church. And so we must, not just as a church, but as individuals who make up this church, take risks the right risks, the risks of obeying him and living for him no matter the outcome. So given that lengthy introduction, how do we liberate ourselves from the mirage and myth of safety, the idol of safety and security, so that we can position ourselves to make and take the right risks? Well, to help you and I be free, we're going to have a Bible story time today. We're just going to chart through the Bible and look at a whole bunch of Bible stories that will help liberate us from the myth of safety and motivate us to make risks for the cause of God. When I was a teenager, I used to catch a bus to and from school, and often on the way home, one of my neighbors, a guy called Michael Igo, who wasn't a believer, um, I would sit with him. He was a couple of years younger than me, and for some reason, I was always trying to reach out to him, and, and then it came a time when I just started telling him Bible stories or whatever, and he said, and every afternoon it became Bible story with Riley. Uh, and so today, it's Bible story with Riley, and we're going to chart through five different Bible stories and just let them flow over us. Uh, you don't need to take notes. This is literally like the, this, just listen. You can if you want, but the sermon from John Piper is online. But I want to take us firstly to Joab and Abishai, the story that we began with in 2 Samuel 10. So to give you a little background in our first story, Job and Abishai, the Ammonites, uh, who David was friendly with, and he'd known their king and their leader, he dies, and David sends messengers to honor the new king and say, we're we're still with you. Uh, The the really wise leaders go, nah, David's going to come and kill you. And so when David sends his messengers, the Ammonites take the messengers and completely shame them. Uh, In that culture, to shame someone, shaved off half their beard and tore their coat, halfway down. <laughs> so these messengers make all the way trip back from Ammon to Israel, half naked and half bearded. David, in his mercy and compassion, hears of this, meets them before they come into the city, says to these guys, no, you go to Jericho, regrow your beard, get some clothes so you don't have to be shamed when you come back into the city. Uh, and then, you know, David's like, it's on, it's wartime. The Ammonites hear that David is angry. And so they go to the Syrians and say, hey, we need some help. So they hire the Syrians, 20,000 foot soldiers, and they all go out to battle. Uh, and so you can imagine this. This is, a, this is a movie scene. This is Lord of the Rings, Two Towers. They're all in the plains. 
And David sends out Joab, the commander of his army. And Joab looks at the situation, realizes that in front of them, Syrians, behind them, Ammonites. They're outnumbered. What's he going to do? In wisdom, he comes up with a plan. He sends Abishai to the back, and he takes a small band of men, his best men, to go fight the Syrians. And he says, basically, look, if I'm struggling, you come and help me. If you're struggling, I'll come and help you. And then comes the the lines that I want us to focus on. Verse 12. Be of good courage, and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. Isn't that amazing? May the Lord do what seems good to him. Joab had to come up with a plan. He had to use strategy. He had to think, but he had to take a risk. The Lord didn't give him divine counsel and say, if you do this, you will succeed. There are times in the Bible where that happens. But in this circumstance, he doesn't know. And so, to do what is right and to fight for God's people and to protect them, he comes up with a plan, he sends out the forces, he says, be courageous, and may the Lord do what seems good to him. Takes the risk, and he goes. It is right to risk for the cause of God. The next story, Queen Esther and Ahasuerus, I'm going to say that wrong, because I always want to say Artaxerxes, but it's Ahasuerus. You know the story of Queen Esther. They're in exile. The Israelite people have disobeyed God. They're in a foreign land. There's a Jewish man named Mordecai who had been carried away to Babylon in the exile. Eventually, the Persians had taken over. He had a younger cousin named Esther, who was beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that she won the beauty pageant and became the king's wife. She became the queen. He didn't know that she was a Jew. Haman, the enemy of the people, um, as the text says multiple times if you read Esther, which I did just recently, he was one of the chief princes and he hated Mordecai the Jew because Mordecai wouldn't bow down before Haman. He wouldn't honor him. Haman wanted to be worshipped and Mordecai wouldn't have a bar of it. And so then Haman's idea is, all right, let's just kill all the Jews, which is very... (laughs) balanced um, policy status, and he he convinces the king to allow that to happen. Mordecai gets wind of it and and tells Esther that this is what's going to happen. Your entire people are going to be genocided across the entire Persian Empire. Messages get sent out to the four corners of the earth that on a certain day, anyone can kill Jews, and you have permission to do it. Mordecai comes before Esther and makes a plea and says that she's got to go to the king on behalf of her people and plead their cause. And he says those famous lines, perhaps you were put here for such a time as this. Now, you need to know in the context that to approach the king in this time and in this context without being bidden to come would result in the death penalty. You could be put to death just for coming into his courts without him saying, hey, I want you to come in unless the king raises his golden scepter. And if he does that, you may approach the king with your request. So what's Esther going to do? Lay down low, not tell anyone who she really is, keep it secret? Or is she going to risk her life and come before the king and be killed? Listen to what Esther says. Verse 15 and 16 of chapter 4. 
Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go and gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. (laughs) And if I perish, I perish. Esther didn't know what the outcome would be. She knew what the right thing that she had to do was, but she didn't know whether or not the Lord would give success to her plan or that the king would put her to death. And what is her reasoned response after prayer and fasting? If I perish, I perish. I've got to try it. I've got to take a risk for the cause of God's people. I must do it. She made a decision, handed the results over to God. And may the women and daughters of sovereign grace be the type of women that breathe those words. Full of fear and trepidation, but the right fear and trepidation. Because it is right to risk for the cause of God. Story number three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or Abednego, probably. Consider again another story from the Old Testament. And we can multiply these out so many times, but you know the story perhaps. Daniel chapter 3, again in the Babylonian captivity. Jewish exiles. King Nebuchadnezzar builds a golden statue to himself wants all the peoples to bow down and worship this statue whenever the horns and the pipes and the bagpipes are played. All the people across all the lands are meant to bow down. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a Jewish man who worship and fear God, and they will not bow down. They will not worship the image of a man. So King Nebuchadnezzar threatens them, pulls them in, and says, I will throw you into a burning furnace. And there they are, in the presence of said burning furnace. It is burning so hot that it burns up the guards who throw on more wood and fuel to make the furnace hot. So they can likely feel the heat of the furnace as they stand before the great king of all the world, Nebuchadnezzar. And this is their answer. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. This is risk right before them. We believe our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, We're not going to do what you tell us to do. Even if God doesn't pull us out of the fire, we're not obeying your commands. We're willing to risk our life for obedience to the cause of God. And you know what happens. They are thrown into the furnace, but they perish not. An angel of the Lord protects them, and they emerge from the flames. Esther's people are delivered from Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Joab and Abashai win the battle. But it doesn't always go like that. Go to Africa. Go to Asia. Look at all the graves of the missionaries who have preached the gospel and died. 
But whether we live or die, may Christ be honoured in our body. It is right to risk for the cause of God. Story number four, the Apostle Paul. Now, we, we're not going to talk about Jesus. He didn't take any risks. Risks rely on ignorance, but Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus knew he was going to die. There was no risk. There was all sacrifice, but no risk. So let us look at the great New Testament risk-taker, the Apostle Paul. And let's go towards the end of his life in Acts 21 and a fateful moment. He's bound by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 19 that he must go to Jerusalem and deliver the money that he's collected. He's been going from church to church to church that he planted, collecting money to deliver to the poor saints who are being persecuted in Jerusalem. And he feels bound by the Holy Spirit in Acts 19, 21. And Acts 20, he says this. He gets as far as Caesarea, and then a prophet comes and speaks to him, Agabus. And Agabus somehow gets Paul's sash for his robe. I don't know how he got it. Would have been an awkward moment. Oh, I've got a prophetic word and he's untying Paul's rope. But nonetheless, he gets Paul's rope and binds his own hands and feet. I'll read the story, Acts 21. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. Now the Christians, the friends of Paul, when they hear this, they beg Paul not to go. This is their response in verse 13. What are you doing? Sorry, their response is, you mustn't go. And then Paul's response is, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. He knows that he'll be bound, but he doesn't know what it will look like. He doesn't know all the punishment and the suffering that will come. He doesn't know that as a result of going to Jerusalem, he'll be housebound for years. Eventually in Rome, they try and convince him. In verse 14, this is what Luke says. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased And said, just like Joab and Abashai, let the will of the Lord be done. He knows that he has to go to Jerusalem for the cause of God, but he doesn't know what will happen. So he takes the risk. Because it is right to risk for the cause of God. And if you look at Paul's entire life, it's one extraordinary risk after the other. When you hear that Paul's going to be bound and in prison, that would be like the lightest of his sufferings that he experienced. Paul gives a recount of some of the bad outcomes he had as a result of his risk-taking in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 to 28. This this is before he goes to Jerusalem. So when he goes, he knows these are the sorts of things that have happened to him, but he's going to go anyway. Read with me. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Five times. 39 lashes on his back. Consider, after the first time, still continuing to be a missionary. And then the second time, when all the scars are reopened. The third time, the fourth time, the fifth time. What would Paul's back have looked like as an apostle? 
What would his face have looked like? I believe Paul would have been a very scarred man. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. That his rocks were thrown at him to such a point that they thought he was dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. Could you imagine in that day and age with no rescue, no safety, your boat crashes and you're in the water? Three times for the Apostle Paul. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Risk after risk after risk after suffering, after pain, persecution, and anxiety. That's what the Apostle Paul carried as he took risks for the cause of God, and he continued to take them against all counsel, against the pleadings of his friends to stop. He's like, I have to go, not knowing whether the next trip, the next church, the next partner with him would betray him and hand him over. There was no safety for the Apostle Paul. John Piper says that safety was a mirage. It didn't exist for the Apostle Paul. He had two choices, to run or to risk. Look what Paul says just a chapter before. And now behold, this is to the Ephesian elders on the shore, the last time he's going to see his beloved church in Ephesus. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Holy Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Except that, I do know this, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. <laughs> I've got to go because I've got a calling on my life. I have a cause for Christ. I must execute. Risk as it may be. And as Henry led us in today, Philippians 1, 20 to 21. It is my eager expectation and hope, he writes this from prison, that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. <laughs> That's how you get there. When you know Christ, when he is your treasure, when you know you liberated from sin, liberated from an eternity of hell and torments, set apart to be a witness to his name, a disciple maker for his name, to liberate others from their slavery to sin, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's how we get there. It is right, friends, for us to risk for the cause of God. But what happens if you and I are paralyzed by fear and we don't risk it and try? One more story. The people of Israel in the wilderness. 
I believe it's one of the most tragic stories in the entire Bible. Recorded in Numbers 13 and 14. It's less than three years since they've been liberated from Egypt. They were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh through miracle after miracle after miracle. They're on the plains of the promised land just to cross the Jordan River and the land is there for the taking. Promise to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Promise after promise after promise. They stand in a sense with no risk. They have a sure word. It's yours. Go and take it. The spies come back from seeing the land. Joshua and Caleb say, it's a good land. They come back with these huge grapes. They come back saying, it is milk and honey. It's awesome. But the other 10 tribes, they come back and say, the people are too big for us. We can't do it. We'll be killed. Caleb, let us go up at once, for we are able to overcome it. The leaders, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. Caleb is unable to explode the myth of safety for the people of Israel. And then they murmur. They murmur against Moses and they decide and they make a pact that they are going to return to Egypt. They are going to leave the promised land and walk all the way back through the desert to Egypt, subjugate themselves into slavery. Why? Because at least in Egypt we had meat pots. We ate meat We had safety, we had security, predictability and comfort before us. The promised land, but potential risk, death and harm behind us. Slavery, oh, but at least meat pots. And not even Joshua, not even Joshua, the great leader of God's people after Moses can convince them. And what happens? They're subjugated as a curse from God to 40 years of a meaningless existence. God says, you may not enter the promised land. You and this entire generation will die in the wilderness. They reply, oh no, we'll go now. And God says, it's too late. You're not having it. And because they would not risk, because they denied the cause of God, God condemned them to a meaningless wandering in that wilderness for 40 years until the next generation would rise up and take the risk and enter the promised land. And what happens The walls of Jericho fall down and they enter in with not a life lost. They wasted their lives. They were so afraid of losing their lives that they were willing to waste it. And wouldn't that be a tragedy for us? Wouldn't that be a tragedy for all of our sovereign grace churches around the world to save our life and waste it? May these words, these stories wash over us. Joab, may the Lord do what seems good to him. Esther, if I perish, I perish. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, if not, we will not serve your gods. Luke and the Apostle Paul, the will of the Lord be done. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Friends, would it be that there is some risk some venture, some calling, some conversation, some ministry, something that God is calling you to do, and you stand on the precipice of that risk, you stand on the precipice of that cliff wanting to jump, wanting to take it for the cause of Christ. You want God to tell you what the outcome will be, that there's a trampoline at the bottom or what will happen, but he's not going to do it most likely. 99% of the time, he's not going to say, this is what will happen. We have to jump. We have to say, we'll try it. 
We'll have to say, the will of the Lord be done. We have to say, if I perish, I perish. That's what we have to do if we're going to testify to the gospel of Christ in Parramatta. That's what we're going to have to do if we want to spread it throughout the world. We have to take risks. We have to be willing to send off sons and daughters who may never return. We have to be willing as a church to send out missionaries and never see them again. Or small little risk where we walk next door and say, has anyone ever told you the gospel? I did it recently. It went poorly. I did a terrible explanation of the gospel, but I took a risk. Would it be that we take these risks for the cause of Christ and his glory? May we not be paralyzed by our fear. May we not live in the mirage of safety and security. If I perish, I perish. May the Lord do what seems good to him. And I want to do today, I want the Lord to do today what Caleb and Joshua were unable to do for the people of God. To explode the myth. To liberate us from the tentacles of security. And to spur us on to take the right risks for the cause of God as a church, as individuals, as a people. I want to protect us from crying out with the Israelites to take us back to Egypt where there's comfort, security, and slavery. I say no. I say no to safety. I say yes to the right risks. I need you to spur me on. We need each other to spur each other on and say, let's try it and see what happens. And if we fail, because we may, There's no guarantee of short-term success. All things work to the good of those who love him, yes. But there is no guarantee that any venture we take will succeed. We have no idea whether or not our ministry will be blessed or this church will be shut down in three years' time. We just don't know. We don't know if our evangelistic efforts will be prospered or they'll fall flat on dead soil. We don't know. But if we fail, may we fail faithfully. May we fail taking the risk. May we fail for the cause of God. He's the sovereign one. May the Lord do what seems good to Him. Even if that means our failure and our patheticness and us looking stupid or even far worse. There's so much application here that we are not going to get to today. We're going to have three more sermons. Next week, Richard's going to preach risk and mission. Then I'm going to preach risk and giving. And then finally, risk and rest. And so we'll save the application for then. You'll have to come back each week or not if you're too afraid. (laughs) I want to leave you with one simple phrase and thought. In this next week, when there's an opportunity to take a risk for the cause of Christ and His glory, I want you to live on the edge of faith and I want you to have this hashtag in your head. Risk is right. Risk is right. Breathe it under your breath. Risk is right. Okay, I'm going to do it. Risk is right. I'm going to tell them. Risk is right. I'm going to give. Risk is right. I'm going to go. It is right to take risks for the cause of God. It is wrong not to take risks for the cause of God, and it doesn't work. Therefore, in the words of Joab, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him.
Amen. Our Lord, I pray and ask that these words would not be rhetoric, that they would be a lived reality in my life and my friend's life and our family's life. May we raise up young Caleb's and Joshua's and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego's and Esther's and Joab's who take the risks. May we be a church that is unwilling to choose safety over your cause, O Lord. May our mantra be to live is Christ and to die is gain. Not to live is safety, to live is purchase, to live is have security, to live is have a dwelling, to live is have a partner, but to live is Christ. May we consider everything as lost compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord and may we take up the great calling which you have given us to make disciples of all the nations, beginning with our friends and family here and abroad. May we bear that responsibility as individuals and as a church. And may we take risks, O Lord, for the cause of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen.